captive of the Centurianus, Chapter 6. Mato was a huddle of thatch-roofed wooden buildings at the foot of a fantastically spired grey castle, sitting amid the broad fields and forests and rivers of Catantumor, with the mountains shining in the far distance. Diane set the ship down just outside the town, stood up, and stretched her tigress body with an exultant laugh. Home, she cried. Gravity! Oh, yeah, Ray tried to lift his feet. It went slowly, with some strain, half again the pull of earth. Irushkadan groaned and wheezed his painful way to a chair and collapsed all over it. Let's go! Diane snatched up her sword, set the helmet rakishly on her bronze curls, and opened the airlock. When Ray hesitated, she reached and yanked him out. The air was cool and windy, pungent with a million scents of earth and growing things, tall clouds sailing over high blue heaven. And even the engineer was grateful for it, after the stuffiness of the boat. He looked around him. Not far off was a charming rustic cottage. It was like a scene from some forgotten idyll of Earth's old past. Looks good, he said. A four-foot arrow hummed past his ear and rang like a gong in the ship's hull. Yelp! Ray dove for shelter. Another arrow zipped in front of him. He whirled at a storm of contralto curses. There were half a dozen women pouring from the charming rustic cottage, a battle-scarred older one and five tall young daughters, waving swords and axes and spears. A couple of men peered nervously from the door. Ha, Oman! yelled Diane. She lifted her sword and dashed to meet the onlookers. The oldest woman caught the Amazon's blow on a raised shield, and her axe clanged off Diane's helmet. Diane staggered, shook her head, and struck out afresh. The others closed in, yelling and jabbing. Diane's sword met the nearest axe halfway and broke across. She stooped, picked the woman off her feet, and whirled her over her head. With a shout, she threw the old she-warrior into two of her nearest daughters, and the trio went down in a roar of metal. Centaurian hospitality, thought Ray. A backhanded blow sent him reeling. He looked up to see a yellow-haired girl looming over him. Before he could do more than mutter, she had slugged him again and thrown him over one brawny shoulder. Hoofs clattered down the narrow dirt road, a squad of armored women riding animals reminiscent of Perkerans, but horned and red of hide, were charging from the town. They swept into the fight, wielding clubbed lances with fine impartiality, and it broke up in a sullen wave of red-splashed femininity. Nobody Ray saw from his upside-down position had been killed, but there were plenty of slashes, and the intent had certainly been there. The harsh, barking language of Catantumor rose on either side. Finally an understanding seemed to be reached. One of the riders pointed a mailed hand at Ray's captor and snapped an order. The girl protested, was overruled, and tossed him pettishly to the ground. He recovered consciousness in a minute or two. Diane picked him up tenderly. Poor Ray, she murmured. We played too rough for you here, huh? What was it all about, he mumbled. All oh, these people were mad because we landed in their field, but the Queen's riders stopped the fight in time. It is only lawful to kill people on the regular dwelling grounds inside the city limits. We must have law and order, you know. I see, said Ray faintly. It was a large and turbulent crowd which gathered at sunset to hear Diane speak. She and her companions were on a raised stand in the market square, together with the scarred, arrogant queen and her troop of pikewomen and cavalry. In the guttering red flare of torches, Ray looks down on a surging lake of women, the soldier peasants of Catan Tumor, 
gathered from all the hinterland, brandishing their weapons and beating clangorous shields in lieu of applause. Here and there public entertainers circulated, thinly clad men with flowers twined into their hair and beards, strumming harps and watching with great liquid eyes. Ray was still not quite sure what the girl's plan was, and by now didn't much care. A combination of the dragging Varanian gravity and the potent Varanian wine made him so sleepy that he could barely focus on the milling crowd. Arushkadan slept the sleep of the just, snoring hideously. Diane ended her harangue and the racket of metal and voices shook the surrounding walls. After that, there were long-winded arguments which sometimes degenerated into fistfights until Ray himself dropped off to sleep. He was shaken awake by Diane and looked blearily around him. Dawn was streaking the horizon with cold, colorless light, and the mob was slowly and noisily dispersing. He groaned as he stretched his stiffened body and tried to brush the dew off his clothes. A natural life, huh? he said miserably and sneezed. It has been decided, cried the girl. She was still as fresh as the morning, her cheeks were flushed and her eyes ablaze. They agreed at last, and now the Varvord goes over the land and envoys are bound for Almado and Kurin to get allies. How soon can we leave, Ray? Leave, he asked stupidly. Leave for where? Why, for Yubita, of course. Huh? You are tired, my little bird. Come with me, and we shall rest in the castle. Ray groaned again. How do you equip an army of barbarians, still in the early Iron Age, to cross four and a third light years of space? A preliminary question, perhaps, is, do you want to? Ray emphatically didn't, but he had very little choice in the matter. He was soon given forcibly to understand that men kept their place and did as they were commanded. He went to Arushkadan and poured out his sorrows. The Martian, after an abortive attempt to steal the spaceship and sneak home, had been given a room in one of the castle towers and was covering large sheets of local parchment with equations. This place, thought Ray, was octopuses in the belfry. They want to go to Jupiter and fight the Jovians, he said. What are it? asked Urushkadan, lighting his pipe. He had found that dried bark could be smoked. They may even succeed. Primitives have often overcome more advanced and better armed hosts. Read the history of Earth sometime. But they'll take us along. Oh, that is different. The Martian riffled through his papers. Let me see. I think equations 549 through 607 indicate yes, here we are. It is possible to project the same time of driving beams we use in the faster than light engine so as to impart a desired velocity vector to external objects, the water away from you. Or, oh, look here, differentiation of this equation shows it would be equally simple to break intranuclear bonds by throwing only a certain type of particle into the pseudo condition. The atom would then feed on its own energy. Ray looked at him in awe. You, he whispered, have just invented the tractor beam, the presser beam, the disintegrator, and the all-purpose, all-fuel atomic motor. I have. Is there money in them? Ray went to work. The three expeditions from Sol had left a good deal of assorted supplies and equipment behind for the use of later arrivals. Most of this had been stored in a local temple, and sacrifices were made yearly to the digital computer. It took an involved theological argument to obtain the stuff. The point that Orman had been rescued was conceded to be a good one, but it wasn't till the high priestess suddenly disappeared that the material was forthcoming. The Ballantine Arishkadan circuits were simple things, once you knew how to make them. With the help of a few tolerably skilled smiths, Ray hammered out enough of the new type atomic generators 
to lift the fleet off Iran and across to Sol. He built the drive circuits carefully, designing them to burn out after landing again on Varan. The prospect of the Amazon planet's people flitting whither they pleased in the galaxy was not one any sane man could cheerfully contemplate. The spaceships were mere hulks of varnished and greased hardwood, equipped with airlocks and slapped together by the carpenters of Mater in a few weeks. The crossing would be made so rapidly that heating in air plants wouldn't be needed. Once the haywired star drives were installed, a pilot sketchily trained for each vessel, and every hull crammed with a couple of hundred yelling warriors, the fleet was ready to go. They poured in, ten times as many as the thirty ships could hold, riding and hiking from the farthest of the continent's little kingdoms, to be in on the most glorious piracy of their dreams. Only Diane cared much about Horman, who was, after all, merely her personal joss, and only Ray gave a good damn about the menace of Jupiter. The rest came to fight and steal and see new countries. They were especially eager to kidnap husbands. The polyandrous system of Iran worked undue hardships on many women, and Diane shrewdly gave preference to the unmarried in choosing her followers. As to the practicability of the whole insane idea, Ray didn't dare think about it. Three hectic months after his arrival at Centauri, the barbarian fleet left for Sol. Jupiter swam enormously in the forward ports, diademed with the bitter glory of open space, growing and growing as the ship rushed closer. Ray pushed his way through the restless crowd of armed women, jammed the boat. Deanne, he pleaded, couldn't I at least call up Earth and find out what's happened? Why, I suppose so, she said, not taking her eyes off the swelling giant before them. But be quick, please. The human fiddled with the telescreen. A few months ago, the notion of crawling over nearly half a billion miles with that undersized thing would have been merely ridiculous, but that was another byproduct of Arushkadan's theory. You used an electron wave with unlimited velocity as a carrier beam for your radio photons. It induced a similar effect in the other transmitter. No distance diminution, no time lag, anyway not within the limits of anything so small as the solar system. Ray got the standard wavelength of the UN Public Relations Office, the only one which he could call freely without going through a lot of red tape. A blurred face looked out at him. He hadn't refined his circuits to the point of eliminating distortion, and the UN official resembled something seen through ten feet of rippled water, at least his image did, but the voice was clear enough. Who is this, please? Ray Ballantyne, returning from Alpha Centauri on the first faster-than-light spaceship, calling from the vicinity of Jupiter. This is no time for joking. Who the devil are you, and what do you want? Please report. I want to give the UN patrol the secret of faster-than-light travel. Stand by to record. Hey! screamed Arushkadan. I never said I'd keep... Diane put her foot on his head and pushed him against the floor. Oh, well, he said. True to incredible generosity of myself, then the secret is made available. Ready to record? asked Ray tightly. I said your humour is in very bad taste said the official, and switched off with an ugly scowl. Ray blinked weakly at the set for a while. Then he tuned in on Earth broadcasts until he caught a news program. Jupiter had declared war a month ago, defeated the UN Navy in a running battle off Mars, seized bases on Luna, and was threatening atomic bombardment of Earth unless terms were met. Oh gosh, said Ray. Such an invasion could only be launched on a shoestring, said Arushkadan. The UN still has bases closer to home. It can cut Jobian supply lines. And meanwhile, poor old Earth is reduced to radioactive rubbish, said Ray gloomily. 
and those grunt brains in charge won't believe I've got the decisive weapon to save them. Would you believe such a claim? No, but this is different, damn it. Ganymede dead ahead, shouted Diem. Stand by for action. Get ready to make a landing. Chapter 7 The flagship spaceboat slanted into the moon's atmosphere with a whoop and a holler, blazed across the ragged surface, and lowered outside the great dome of Ganymede City. The clumsy hulks behind her wallowed after at a more leisurely pace. Lacking spacesuits, the Amazons were faced with a certain problem of entry. Diane hovered over the spaceport and opened her disintegrator's full blast. The port disappeared in a sudden tornado of boiling rock and leaping blue fires. When she had sunk a fifty-foot pit, she went down into it, hung before the side of it facing the city, and narrowed the disbeam to a drill. In moments she had cut a tunnel through to the lower levels of the city. Air began streaming out, ghost-white with freezing water vapor, but it would take quite a few minutes for the pressure within to fall dangerously low. Meanwhile Diane sailed blithely through her tunnel, disintegrated various walls and bulkheads to clear a landing space, and set down amid the ruins of the city's factory level. All out, she cried. Hi, Katantuma! Ray buckled on his helmet with shaky fingers, drew his sword, and followed her out the airlock, more because of the press of bodies behind than from any desire for glory. In fact, he admitted to himself, he was scared witless. Only Rushkadan stayed behind, the lucky devil. The rest of the barbarian fleet streamed in one by one, landing clumsily and discharging their clamorous hordes. When the clear air was filled, they landed on top of each other, and the armoured warriors jumped down in a flash of edged metal. After they were all in, Arushkadan projected a beam and melted the passageway shut against the escape of air and heat. Also, thought Ray sickly, against a quick retreat. Hoo-ha! Diane's sword shrieked in the air above the helmeted heads of her mailing army. She started down the nearest corridor, running and bounding and whooping. The Amazons were hard on her heels, and the racket of clashing armor and girlish voices was shattering. Up a long staircase, five steps at a time, into the hall beyond that, spilling out over a broad plaza. A machine gun raved, and Ray saw three centaurians tumble to the floor. As he dove for it himself, he looked across the square and into the muzzle of the thing where it sat in one of the branch corridors. There might be only a skeleton garrison left in the city, but it had reacted with terrifying swiftness. Ray tried to dig through the metal floor plates. The air was suddenly thick and whistling. A solid rain of spears and arrows loosed. It didn't leave much of the machine gun crew. One of the Amazon officers, they had some notion of firearms, picked off the .50 caliber under one arm. When a squad of Jovian soldiers appeared down the hallway, she held it against her knee and used it Tommy gun style. It worked. Ray was carried along by the tide. In this weird struggle, modern firearms weren't of decisive use. Boiling through the miles of gloomy hallways and narrow apartments, the fight was almost entirely hand-to-hand, and that was exactly what the Varanians loved. Diane vaulted over a row of bodies and hit a Jovian squad with all her mass and momentum. She trampled two men underfoot while her sword howled in a shearing arc around her. A Jovian grenadier hurled his pineapple in her direction. She snatched it out of the air and tossed it back. Wildly he caught it and threw it again. Diane laughed and pitched it once more, very shortly before it went off. 
Turning, she skewered one Jovian, kicked another in the belly, used her sword's guard as a knuckle-duster against a third, and cut down a fourth in almost the same motion. The squad broke up. Ray saw an inviting door and scurried for it. There was a bed to hide under. Two Jovian soldiers came in at that moment, fleeing the barbarians. Ray's helmet and cuirass were as good as a uniform, or he would have shouted, Hail Wilder. As it was, the nearest man lunged at him with a bayonet. Ray's sword clattered against the weapon, driving it briefly aside. The Jovian snarled and probed inward, but a bayonet is clumsy compared to a well-handled blade, and Ray had done a little fencing. He beat the assault back and thrust under the fellow's guard. The other man had been circling, trying to get in on the fun. Now he charged. Ray whirled to meet him and tripped on his scabbard. He clanged to the floor, and the rushing Jovian tripped on him. Ray got on the man's back, pulled off his helmet, and beat his head against the floor. Rising, he checked the two rifles. Empty. The Jovians must have used all their clips in an attempt to stem the Centaurian thrust, which explained their choice of cold steel against him. But they had full cartridge belts. Ray unloaded one of the guns and felt better. Peering carefully out the door, he saw that the fight had moved somewhere else. He started back toward the ships, the safest place he could think of. As he rounded a corner, a tommy gun blast nearly took his head off. He yelled, dropped to the floor just in time, and let the gun fall from his hands. A hard boot slammed against his ribs. Get up! He lurched to his feet and stared into the faces of a Jovian detachment, the black-clad elite guard of the dictator himself. Martin Walder the Great huddled in their midst. Colonel Wachowski Falkamp was at their head in charge of Jupiter's home defence, Ray thought wildly, and tried to stretch his arms higher. Bell and Dine, the Jovian officer glared at him for a long moment. So you are responsible. I had nothing to do with it, so help me I didn't, protested Ray between the clattering of his teeth. You brought these savages in, you and your damned faster-than-light engine. If it weren't for your hostage value, I'd shoot you now. As it is, I'll wait till later. March! They went carefully down the glutted hall street. The Centaurians had been picking up souvenirs from every shop and apartment they passed. Don't think this will accomplish anything, said Wilder pompously. You may have driven us from our capital, but we've already called for help from the other cities, from the whole Jovian system. The fleet is on its way. So the Amazons had taken Ganymede City, and now they'll be too busy looting to think about counterattacks from outside. Ray groaned. We have to get out of here, sir, said Roshevsky Felkamp. We don't want you to be caught in the fighting. No, no, that would never do said Wilder quickly. There is a military airlock this way, with spacesuits. We can get out on the surface. I will strike a new medal, chattered the dictator. Defense of the homeland medal. And afterward we will take those ships, Wachowski Felkamp's hard face lit with a terrible glee. And then the stars are ours. Hooah! The shout rang down the hallway. Ray saw a Centaurian band staggering under armloads of assorted plunder emerge from a side passage. The Jovians brought their rifles up. Something like an atomic bomb hit the group from the rear. Diane's war cry shrieked above the sudden din. She hadn't been altogether a fool. Ray was shoved back against the wall by the sudden whirlpool of struggling bodies. He ducked as a Iranian sword whistled overhead. Diane was wading in among the Jovians, kicking, striking, hewing like a maniac. She split one enemy apart, pitched another into a third, turned around and chopped loose. Her warriors got to work at her side. A panting Jovian backed up close to Ray, lifting his rifle anew to shoot down the bronze-haired girl. The Earthman thoughtfully removed the soldier's pistol from its holster and shot him. My little hero, cried Diane happily. 
I love you so much. She beat down another man's gun and broke his head. The fight ended. Most of the Jovians had simply been knocked galley west and submitted in a stunned way to being bound and hoisted to Varanian shoulders. Ray had a glimpse of Martin Wilder the Great and Colonel Ryshevsky Falkamp being dragged off by a squat and muscular Amazon with a silly smirk on her sword-scarred face. They were destined for her harem, and he couldn't think of two people he'd rather have it happen to. Only there were those Jovian ships. Ray had no way just then of knowing that Arishkadan had prudently taken the spaceboat outside again and was using its long-range beams to disintegrate the fleet as it came down. He hummed an old Martian work song to himself as he did. There are times when even a philosopher must take measures. Official banquets and notoriously dull affairs and the present celebration was no different. That the lunar-based invaders had capitulated on hearing of the disaster at home, that a democratic government with UN membership had been set up for permanently disarmed Jupiter, and that the stars were open to mankind seemed to call forth only bigger and better platitudes. Ray Ballantyne, drowsy with food and cocktails, nearly snowblind with white tablecloth, would have fallen asleep except for the fact that his shoes pinched him. So he listened with some surprise to the president of his alma mater, telling what an outstanding student he'd been. As a matter of fact, he recalled, he'd damn near been expelled. Irushkadan, crammed into a Martian-designed tuxedo, smoked a throttled pipe at his right and made calculations on the tablecloth. Diane Corlas, her shining hair braided around a stolen Jovian tiara, looked stunning in a low-cut evening gown on his left. The dagger at her waist was to set a new fashion on earth, and there had been some confusion when she insisted on having Ormond the Terrible placed in front of her, and Grace said to the idol, Oh, well. When this jointless genius of science, whom his university is pleased to honour with a doctorate of law. I don't know, he murmured back. I want to get a patent on that damn interstellar drive before Arishkadan does, but after that, well... It was a lot of fun while it lasted, wasn't it? Diane's smile was wistful. But I've been thinking, Ray, I'm going back to Varan and carve me out to throne. You, well, Ray, you are too fine and beautiful for such rough work. You belong here in the glamour and bright lights, not out with a lot of coarse and ruly women who might hurt you. You know, he said, I think you've got something there. I will always remember you, she said sentimentally. Maybe some day when we are old, we can meet again and bore the youth with talk of our great days. She looked around. If only we could sneak out here and have a farewell party of our own. I know a bar. Hmm, Ray stroked his chin. This calls for tactics. If we could sort of slump down in our chairs as if we were tired, and Lord I am, and gradually sink out of sight, we could crawl under the table and through that door. As he crept down the hall, Ray heard Arishkadan call on for a speech, begin the detailed exposition of his latest theory.